the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome today, Michael Pope. Michael is the Vice President of Reimbursement and Professional Advocacy for the American Academy of PAs. And let me tell you, he has a wealth of information on PA practice and reimbursement. He gave a talk at a recent Indianapolis meeting, and I'm excited to have him back on the podcast. Michael, welcome. Thank you, Sam. It's my pleasure to be here, and it's been great working with you for so many years. Absolutely. Well, let's jump right in. We're going to have several parts to this discussion, but let's talk about PA advocacy updates. You presented a slide about difference between PA and NP Medicare payments or no difference, and I was hoping you might elaborate on that a little bit. Sure, happy to. I think there are oftentimes misconceptions in terms of how payers treat different healthcare professionals. And when we look at the Medicare program, it's one of the best examples of a nearly provider-neutral environment. The rules of engagement, that is, who gets covered, who gets paid, between PAs, physicians, and NPs, it looks almost similar across the landscape. In specific, there are almost no differences between the rate of payment, the coverage policy, and any other regulations that the Medicare program puts in place when you compare it with PAs and NPs. There may be a couple of small items out of 8,000 CPT codes where there is a difference between NPs and PAs, but for the vast majority of services and for the rate of payment, it is exactly the same across the board. So that kind of gets to some myths about Medicare. We're going to get to that in a later discussion, but that's something that's not true. PAs and NPs uh, reimbursement are about the same for Medicare. What about the ABSA, the American Board of Surgical Assistants? And I actually, I think I spelled that wrong in our script, but what is that and how might it affect practice? And this is something I want everybody that works in surgery to listen to. Yeah, this is somewhat of a new phenomenon. And the American Board of Surgical Assistants is a private group located out of Wisconsin. And they have been going to various hospitals trying to suggest that there is a certification process or testing process they offer that's going to ensure some level of credibility in terms of who can or can't appropriately first assist. And we've taken a look at their program. We've looked at some of the intricacies of their certification process. And what we believe is that the current training that PAs get in their programs and clinical rotations is really sufficient and has shown itself to be sufficient over the past 50 plus years in terms of having PAs as qualified first assistants in surgery. We're concerned that this additional attempt to put another layer of regulatory process or some kind of proof that uh, there is competence is really just something that's going to cause more money to be spent on a process that doesn't necessarily yield better outcome or better quality care for patients. So we have been trying to talk with hospitals to let them know a little more detail about the training of PAs in their programs and what makes them very well suited for not just the first assist, but also the pre-op work and the post-op work that patients have with the surgery. And so we think that there may be some individuals who perhaps aren't PAs who need some additional training, but we are not in favor of any additional level or requirement out there because we don't see what problem they're trying to solve. So we're actively working with different hospitals to let them know that this is probably not the right approach for PAs in terms of first assisting in surgery. Yeah, the more ladders that you have to climb, the more obstacles that you have to face, the more credentialing that you have to have, the harder it is to practice. So pay attention to this, folks, and make sure if you see this in your facility or your hospital to contact the AAPA and uh, get some help with that. 
Yeah, exactly right, Sam. I mean, we've seen through the pandemic that we don't need any more barriers to creating access to care. We're already short-staffed. There are shortages throughout almost every profession. And so any additional, as you say, barrier or mountain to climb to be able to provide patient care really does hurt access overall. And again, if there's no problem to be solved here among the PA community, then why institute some other program that has to be completed? I agree completely. Agree completely. Okay, so next item, can you talk to our audience? I, I don't know if everybody knows what a global fee schedule means. A lot of people do, but I think some don't. And I think it's important to have that as a precedent to talk about my question, CMS or the Medicare, Medicaid interest in post-op visits and the implications for PAs. For surgery, there is something called the global surgical package. And that is when several different aspects of care are bundled, if you will, into one package for payment. And the Medicare program has certainly done that with surgery. So Medicare's global surgical package covers certain things that include the pre-op work, the intraoperative care, the surgery itself, and also a certain number of days of post-op care, either 10 or 90 days of post-op care for a major surgery. And so Medicare bundles that together and pays for it in one lump sum. And it's important for everybody in the surgical community to understand what that includes and what it doesn't include, because Medicare is fairly strict in terms of any attempt to unbundle a global package or to bill for things that are already included in the surgical package can run you at risk of fraud and abuse kind of concerns. And so it's important to know what especially is included from a PA point of view in terms of their work product in the global package. And one of the most important components of that is the post-op care because those visits that come after surgery for a certain period of time are already paid for in the global bundle. And if there's any attempt to bill, for example, on a major surgery for those post-op visits that occur within the first 90 days after surgery, that could be a problem in terms of fraud and abuse or improper billing. So it's important also to keep track of what you're doing, your work, and we're going to talk about that later too. Another hot topic. These are all hot topics, advocacy issues. Can you please tell our listeners a little bit about provider non-discrimination provisions? And you said this whole thing started with the healthcare exchanges several years ago. I was hoping you might discuss it and what it means for PAs. Yeah, this is one of the more interesting things that I've worked with over the years, only because it has taken so long to go from legislation to regulation. Section 2706 of the Public Health Service Act was language that really said that you really can't discriminate against the healthcare professional based on their licensure or their training and education, which means essentially that if someone is a PA or an NP or a chiropractor, you can't across the board discriminate against them by not letting them provide services that are up to their standards based on state law. Now, this was supposed to be adjudicated back in 2014 in terms of the details. As you know, Sam, we have legislation, and once that gets passed, there are implementing regulations that talk about how to do it on a day-to-day -day basis. And we have never seen regulations issued for this particular issue, even though it's almost 10 years old in terms of when the statutory authority was put out there. So there was new language put in what's called the Consolidated Appropriations Act in 2021, which was meant to force the agencies to put out more detail and regulation on how they're going to implement this particular provision. And one of the unique things about this provision is that it is handled by three separate federal agencies, the Department of Labor, the Department of Treasury, and the Department of Health and Human Services. So it's really rare to have three different agencies working on one rule, and perhaps that is some of the reason for the amount of time that it's taken to put this in play. But we think 
that the potential implications are fairly large if this does come out the way we think it should in terms of the regulatory implementation. In other words, if a payer decided that it didn't want to allow PAs to do certain things, high-level E&M codes, for example, that would not be allowed because that would be discriminated against a class of providers based on their licensure. So we think that there are a lot of protections in this legislation that could help the PA profession. Another area where it might be helpful is if a certain payer decided that it didn't want to include PAs in their provider directories, for example, that are made available to patients to choose who their healthcare professional will be. We think this legislation would not allow that to occur. So any kind of barrier that a payer might put up in front of PA as a profession might not be allowed based on this provision. Now, there are also some who have taken the interpretation that it might go so far as to say, well, if you're discriminated against PAs or NPs by paying them at a lower rate than you do physicians, that might even be considered a discriminatory action. And might this cause there to be a different rate, an increased rate of reimbursement for PAs and NPs, because if they're providing the same level of care as a physician and building the same code, why then should there be a discount or differential in reimbursement? Now, I'm taking this out to its most interesting conclusion, and it's likely that it wouldn't go that far. But the fact is, we think there are lots of protections built into this legislation that could help make sure that payers especially don't put on undue barriers or burdens in front of PAs in terms of how they provide care, as long as that's within the confines of state law, and what they can do in terms of patient contact and interaction. So we think this has really some interesting implications. We also know, Sam, that it's going to be fought pretty hard by the insurance communities, as well as the Chamber of Commerce, who think that any kind of expansion of opportunity for healthcare providers means higher costs. So they are on the other side of this coin, trying to fight against a more broad interpretation. Now, we were assured, once again, that by the end of August, there was going to be some regulatory implementation done by the three federal agents. And here we are again after August, and we still haven't seen the regs. But this is an issue that we've gone to members of Congress to and asked them to weigh in and to encourage the three agencies on the federal side to promulgate these regulations. We are waiting. We're hopeful that something will happen in the next couple of months, but it has been a long-term fight to try to get implementation of this particular statute. Government going slow with some legislation that will help us. What an what a interesting concept. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yep, exactly. Michael, thank you. Those are our PA advocacy updates. And listeners, stay tuned for next week when we talk about coding and billing updates. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. We also welcome you to visit our website, paos.org, where members can download virtual conference content and get Category 1 CME. Also, if you're a non-member and you're interested in our CME content, please visit the aapa.org Learning Central for the PAOS virtual content.